The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. This is the opening verse of Psalms 14, a verse that I have long misinterpreted. It's easy to look out into the world and see the reality that this might impose upon others. There is no shortage of corruption in government. There is no shortage of vile behavior in culture. And even as we look close, even as we look closer, we ask the question, why is it that no one does good? And the error in my judgment and the error in the perception might be chalked up to the time we are born in, the eras that we live, those of us who were raised in the setting sun or the brief zenith, let's call it, of the new atheist movement, were given one set of examples that clearly define how this verse plays out, how this truth can be seen across our horizon. However, it is possible that we miss an element of it, that we miss the deeper uh, connotations, the uh, the deeper components of what this speaks about belief, especially when it comes to reality, and then if you want to get even farther, maybe metaphysics, which is the same question, but we're not going to get too semantic in the subject. For years, the example that would stand out forward would be the idea of the atheist. In some ways, it was the asshole atheist, the guy who was so arrogant, so prompt in his ideas, that he walked around with this weird straight-backed, shoulders-splayed posture saying, oh, religion is the opiate to the masses, and he walked around with his his empty condemnations presenting himself as the wiser man. He played the world of history as a movie of a conflict between religion and science, as if all that we believe and all that we think about could be so easily distilled into two opposing narratives. The problem with the idea that there is no God is not only one of questioning the being of God itself, but it also is one that defies reality its proper due. When we say that there is no God, we say that there are no rules that bind us that are outside of our control. There is no limitations to who we are that is not purely of our volition. We say that Gravity is subject to my desires. For if you look at God in the way that the children described it, or the, let's call it, straw man of this new atheist movement wanted to knock down, God was just simply something over there out in the clouds that sometimes did good things and sometimes confused you, sometimes could tell you how to live your life, and sometimes ignored you. God was this 
idea of a person that was outside of our reach as far as our hands, but God was just over there. And this straw man does not give credit to the divinity or the idea of what a God is. It rather masquerades itself as convolution. Well, it's, sorry, it masquerades itself as a easier, more enlightened worldview without accepting ideas like worldview or the burden of belief. It says, I don't, act- I don't believe in faith, I just trust the science. And the strange thing is that we gave these people credence. We argued with them. We gave them debates. We had argue, We had reasons to dis. Uh, we had reasons to negotiate with them in the fields of academics. And it's intriguing too because the way that this came about is both historical and, in a philosophy sense, a natural due course of a string of arguments and beliefs that are held. When Psalms opens up, when, when Psalms 14 opens up with the phrase, the fool says to himself, there is no God, we remember the phrase that he says, but do we put an account to what that person is described as. The Enlightenment has been a term, a period of time that has been praised and condemned, explained and confused, disregarded, overinflated, left over there, left undescribed. The Enlightenment was a period of time that came after the refer- or after the medievals and before mo- our modern time. It was th- simply rich old white men debating ideas in books. And the consequences of the Enlightenment are going to play out for the rest of history. They will never be reversed, they will never be corrected, they will never be changed because the events that took place in the Enlightenment are the acts of men by their nature. We may change the order of society, but we cannot change the fact that we are created in the image of God, and we cannot change the fact that that creation is corrupted by the sin of our own volition. And the Enlightenment produced many things that we call to be good, perhaps appropriate, perhaps timely, perhaps fitting within the day and the age, perhaps some of it was political, some of it social, some of it economic. It sure is nice to have a computer. It sure, sure is nice to be connected with you through the internet. It sure is nice to know that I can go to a grocery store in the middle of winter and buy fresh fruit. It sure is nice to know in the heat of the summer, I can travel across the country to visit my family and have fresh ice and cold beer any day I wish. But the Enlightenment was not simply an industrial revolution, it was one of ideas. And ideas have consequences. This is not my own words. Many theologians have said it before me. And so when I say ideas have consequences, here's an example. 
The word liberal, liberalism, libertarianism, liberty have evolved over time and they have evolved on two tracks. One track being the use, the common use of the word, and the other one is its application to social structures. But one thing that the Enlightenment and its, ad, its uh, emphasis in rationalism placed was it wanted to elevate the ability for people to engage in ideas. And one of the things that that required was this thing called intellectual charity. And intellectual charity is such that if you and I are going to sit down across the table on subjects that we may agree or disagree on, and particularly when we disagree on it, we need to give each other charity. Charity being, I must approach the table with the intention to best interpret your ideas. If we disagree on something and I approach your ideas as the worst in interpretation while fighting it with the best of mine, I am not doing the right thing. I am not being a gentleman. I am not being a philosopher. I am being a dishonest interlocutor. And so the Enlightenment, with its emphasis on rationality, its even worship of rationality at times, brought about this thing we call liberalism, freedom of belief and freedom of you know, ideas and discussion and debate. And it did so on a foundation that so long as we are engaging in conversation, we can be engaging in intellectual charity. And within the academics, we'd wanted to do that, bring that value into the forefront so that anybody who is, brings forth their idea will have their ideas respected and dealt with, addressed, debated with within the classroom, the debate hall, the library, the journal. And what that liberalism brought with it was the opportunity for fools to control the system. Because this form of, let's call it society, this form of, uh, this, this series of values as far as when it comes to academics and intelligence, because it has with it in baked into the cake a necessity of intellectual charity, it no longer has the tools in this sense, or perhaps after time we have lost it, but it no longer has the tools to de deal with things like fools. The book of Psalms in the, in the 14th chapter opens with, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And we have the charity to think, or we have the ability right now in our timeline to look back at people who so arrogantly and proudly proclaimed their so-called atheism that they were not a believing person. They were not religious. And we were giving them the intellectual charity to say, okay, you're not religious, then what? And we were played as a society, as a culture, as men and women, we were pay, played by a trick, but not a smart trick, a 
virus of a trick. Whether or not it was specifically designed to take advantage of our ideas and what we thought to be right and true and good, or whether or not it simply evolved over time as the only surviving bio, well, for only surviving organism of sorts that could interact with our immune system, the idea that a person could be not religious, they could have no values, no morals, or they could abandon the foundation by which those morals are constrained, construed, those morals are grounded is the right word. They could say, I don't need the, so the soil that the fruit is planted on. I can just eat the apple forever. This harkens back to that idea, the fruit without the vine. They thought they could have their cake and eat it too, and they thought the cake would be delivered to them by a baker they destroyed. They had no oven. They had no chair to sit in. They destroyed the material by which they could have belief. I'm sorry, they, did, they destroyed, they, they ignored, they denied the foundation by which morality could be understood or could be grounded in, and yet they still desired to claim that morality. And this is where the fool comes to play. And this is where I misinterpreted the word. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And I looked out and said, that man doesn't believe in God. He must be what is being described. Meanwhile, I told myself that the rules that God placed on the world did not apply to me. I was the exception. Canonically, the book of Proverbs, I'm sorry, canonically, the book of Psalms is followed by the book of Proverbs, Psalms being written by King David, Proverbs being written by his son Solomon, Solomon being told to be the wisest man who ever lived. The book of Proverbs can easily be read as a series of encouragements and condemnations. It follows a classic almost meter of sorts, although we're dealing with an English translation, and it has these things compared to one another. A wise man does this, a fool does that. A good man experiences the blessing of the Lord, a bad man anguishes in his, pick the verse, pick the condemnation. And it's easy to read these verses and say, oh look, I am like the righteous man, I am not like the foolish man. I can see how I have done this in the past, and I have seen how others have done that in the past. And the problem with the book of Proverbs is that when you read the condemnations, when you read the, let's say it, bad outcomes as something that happens over there, or something that happens to other people, or something that you can wrestle with, disagree with, or even negate, you find yourself on the bad end of those consequences. And so the fool says to himself, there is no God, is the man who denies the existence of something that has the reins over his consequences. 
that he does not get to choose the order of the world. We have seen it said, we have heard it said many times that religion is this sort of structured belief system uh, by people about supernatural events and explanations and such. And this explanation might hold up if you have the intellect, intellect of a child. And if you have the intellect of a child, you should not be taken seriously in the company of wise men. Rather, sit down, shut up, listen. But as a fool, and many of us have been the fool, and I have been the fool, I have listened to words that are true and decided they don't apply to me. I am the exception. Were it so simple as a confession of main character syndrome, we could dismiss it and laugh it off. And it's not to turn this conversation into something dark and depressing and separating from society. But we see that we have lost the words for categorizing people. When we read the old texts, when we read of the evaluations of mankind, the decisions that people make, the way that they are described, we used words like fool, mocker, the malicious. But now, in our enlightened age, or our post-enlightened age, we call each other stupid, misinformed, disinformed. A dishonest interlocutor sounds a lot more intellectual than somebody being called a fool. And regardless of whether you're the one speaking or whether the one, you are the one receiving these words, we ourselves act as fools when we deny the order of the world when we say to ourselves, we are bigger than the rules, we are saying to ourselves, we are bigger than God. And in the moment, it might feel like aspiration to greatness. It may feel like a desire to do something good. It may feel like I will go forth and do the hard thing. But what we are hiding from ourselves is that foolishness. We are saying to ourselves, there is no God. Your rules have no authority over me. Because that which determines the rules by which we live is functioning our, as our God. The thing that determines the rules, the morals that you live by is functionally your God. All people are religious. When the fool says that there is no God, he can do so while believing in a supernatural being, but claiming that he is exempt from the rule set. And thus we get the following. He is corrupt. His actions are vile. There is no one who does good. But 
there is hope. The hope of the gospel is not so simple as a feeling. It's not so fleeting as an emotion. Goodness is always available to those who repent, and it is always out of reach of those who are unrepentant. And if you have found the idea of repentance a nice idea but hard to put your hands on, keep it up one day at a time. one day at a time. So in closing, it isn't enough to blame the Enlightenment for the status of our world. However, it is also up to us. It is our responsibility as the people alive today to live in this world by the rules that are set before us. We are, it is our responsibility, our burden, to live as we ought. We do not get to excuse our bad behavior on the times. We do not get to excuse our decisions, our laziness, our cowardice on the difficulty set before us. Try and perish or perish alone. And if you find yourself saying to yourself, there is no God, that the rules do not apply to me, that I am the exception, this is your call to repent.